our Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 3. John's Gospel, chapter 3. I'm going to look this morning at probably one of two of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. Uh, Right there with the 23rd Psalm, there is John, chapter 3, and verse 16. The very first verse in God's Word... Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those early verses of Genesis go on to tell us about the other things that God created, and ultimately, God created man. He put man in a garden that was called Eden, told man to enjoy every fruit that grows in this garden except for one. And that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve ate of that tree, ate of the forbidden fruit that grew upon that tree, thereby sinning, disobeying God. They become guilty, in other words, of disobedience. Sin is disobedience. But when they ate, they not only brought sin upon themselves, but they brought sin upon the entire human race. All of their descendants that would come later were born into sin because they inherited that sinful nature from their foremother and their forefather, Adam and Eve. When we think about sin, it's not so much a matter of, well, I choose to be a sinner or I don't or I choose not to be a sinner. No, we're born with a sinful nature that's inherent to us. Now, there may be times in our life where there's a specific sin that we could commit, that we have to make a moral choice or a moral judgment and say, I will do this or I won't do this on the other hand. But we still have that sinful nature and even... Even before we realize what sin is, we're committing sin. And Scripture is very clear. Sin does not please God. Sin is something God just doesn't like. By their disobedience, they brought sin upon their descendants, and that includes you and me. How do we know that? Well, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us that Eve became the mother of all living. Eve's name comes from the verb, which means to live. And so Eve became the mother of all living. All that would follow after her became her descendants. Because of their sin, God moved Adam and Eve out of the garden. And after they were banished or banned from the garden... Eve conceived, and they had two sons, Cain and Abel. They both brought offerings before the Lord, and God was pleased with Abel's offering because it was brought in a spirit of sincerity and genuineness, whereas Cain's was not. Cain's was brought with kind of a haughty or a contrite spirit or a presumptuous kind of spirit. And so God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. It made Cain so angry that he rose up and he killed his brother in cold blood. God came to him and said, What is is this that you've done? 
And Cain said, just kind of tried to shrug the whole thing off and he said, am I my brother's keeper? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when that fruit that looked so delicious hanging there on the tree and they took it and they eat it, ate it, they never could have imagined the horror of having a son rise up and kill another of their sons. It's aptly been said that sin will always take you further than you plan to go. Sin will keep you longer than you plan to stay. And sin will keep you longer than you planned to stay. That is the nature of sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the fair payment or the penalty or uh, what is due as a result of sin is death. And anyone who is a sinner is deserving of that punishment. God is holy. God is righteous. And man is tainted with sin. Sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? You say, what hope is there for a sin? If we're all born with a sinful nature, if we're all sinners, we sin every day, we sin in ways that we don't even know about, we sin at times we do know about it, we make wrong moral choices, what hope then is there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because there is good news. And it's found in John chapter 3 and verse 16. And I invite you to stand with me this morning in honor of the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning and before this great text of Scripture, we pray that your word would speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. Change us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're seated. First of all, God loved and God gave. God loved and God gave. What is the love of God like? Well, it's kind of a hard thing to describe if you're just trying to describe love in general. It's kind of a tough thing. You, you immediately, your mind moves to examples of love. Say, so, well, it's kind of like this, and then you illustrate it with a real example. It's kind of hard, though, to talk about the concept of what is love. Well, the Bible tells us to love one another. The Bible tells us to love God. The Bible tells us that God loves us. But what does this love look like? What is it like? How would you describe it? Well, God didn't just tell us about love. God showed us love. God demonstrated His own love towards us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is not restricted he says, God loved the world. God's love is not uh, just uh, tied to one nation or one period of time or one group. It's not restricted by uh, ethnicity or social classes or anything like that. It transcends 
all of those earthly barriers that mankind has put up. It's not reserved for just the spiritually elite, those who do a certain amount of good works, who are found to be worthy enough in some way. No, God's love is greater than all of that. God knew mankind could not save himself from having to pay the wages or the penalty for his own sin. And again, back to Romans uh, 6.23 that I read earlier. For the wages of that sin is death. The fair penalty, the due judgment for sin is death. But the good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man had neither the, the, the desire nor did he have the ability to come to God on his own. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul is quoting from the 14th Psalm when he writes, There is none righteous, not even one, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who naturally seeks after God. The world in general, and you and I specifically, did not deserve to be spared from the wrath the punishment that is to come. And you say, well, what is this wrath? What is this punishment? I don't understand. I'm a good person. I'm, I'm better than uh, a lot of people that I see. I'm better than my neighbors. I've got family members that are far worse than me. Everywhere I look, there are people that are doing bad things and I don't do uh, what they're doing. The Bible says... Whoever's kept all of God's law and yet they stumble at one point, they're guilty of it all. What does that mean? It means that they've become a lawbreaker. How many times do you have to break a law to be a lawbreaker? Five, ten, fifteen, twenty? No, the answer is just one. If you do it one time, then, then that's it. You've broken God's law. You're not, you're not perfect. You're guilty of sin, falling short of the glory of God. That's where Christ comes in. He says, no one can live up to those righteous standards. So God sent His Son to kind of bridge that gap between a holy God on one hand and sinful man on the other. And no one comes to Christ except but by that bridge. No one comes to God except by the Son and through the Son. People will want to talk about God today kind of in a generic or a general way. God is creator. God is out there. God is this positive spirit in the world. And they'll talk about him in the broadest of terms. But yet, what made God personal was Christ, who, who is God in the flesh. Scripture teaches us. We're told that we are brought near by the blood of the cross. But God, because of His love for this world, sent Jesus to die in our place for our sins. We say that He atoned for our sins. And that word atone basically means that everything was made right with God. If we wrong somebody in some way, we might go to them and apologize. And in that sense, we're making an, an atonement for uh, any way that we might have wronged them. We say, I'm sorry 
please forgive me. That's making atonement with that person. Well, what has happened uh, before God is, is that man has become guilty of sin. And Christ has come and basically stood in our place uh, before God and atoned or made all things right. Second thing we see in John 3.16 is this. In the latter part of the verse, we see that God planned for our rescue. God planned for our rescue. The offer of the gospel, and the word gospel means good news, is broad enough to encompass even the vilest of sinner. As a pastor over these years, I've heard so many people say that, well, you don't know what I've done. I don't really believe God could forgive me for the things I've done. We see people in the Bible that God forgave, people that become Christians that were murderers. Murderers even of multiple people. You say, is there anything you've done that's worse than murdering people multiple times? I mean, it's, it's... The offer of salvation is for everyone. There is no one so vile, so wicked, so evil that they can't come to God. But we all come the same way, whether it's a sweet person who is already moral, who just doesn't have Christ as their Savior, all the way to the wickedest of criminals. We all come to Christ the same way, by repenting of our sins and turning to God. The Bible doesn't place a lot of weight on one sin versus another. You can't say, well, wow, these are really big, heavy sins, and it takes a lot more effort on God's part to forgive those. And and this person over here, they just do a few bad things. Well, no, God doesn't look at it that way. Remember, there is none righteous, no, not one. And whoever's kept the whole law and yet stumbled at one point, he's guilty of it all. So in other words, if you've broken even one of God's laws, you're a sinner. And in need of repentance. So we all come to Christ the same way. Jesus made a promise which is recorded in John chapter 6 and verse 37. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There's no qualifiers on that verse. It's, it's, there's no exceptions. There's no fine print that you look down and say, there's no asterisk by that verse, and then you look down at the bottom and, oh, well, it excludes commission of this sin and this sin and this sin. You ever heard of a deal that's too good to be true? We hear about them all, all day, every day, don't we? We're skeptical of most advertising because we know that it's probably too good to be true. There's some gimmick, there's some way that they're trying to to get at you. They're making promises they can't keep, and that's how we've been conditioned in our world. But when we look in God's Word and we see a verse like this in John 6, 37, where Jesus said, and He promised, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Who is the one? That's anyone. That's everyone that will come to Christ. The Lord guarantees those given forgiveness and eternal life will never perish, but will be preserved by God. Now, that's that's quite a guarantee. 
We hear about things that have a 20-year warranty, a 5-year warranty, a 50-year guarantee, a lifetime guarantee. How about the guarantee of eternity? Even though you live your life and you die, it still goes on. In fact, it's just begun. Like the words of the great old hymn, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's eternity without end. And that's the kind of life God promises us. He says, we will not perish. Now, there's no promise that we won't die an earthly death. All people do eventually. But we will not perish in the most ultimate sense. In other words, we won't lose our soul. Our soul is preserved by God. And it will spend eternity in heaven. The Lord guarantees those given forgiveness and eternal life will never perish, but will be preserved ultimately and truly by God. Jesus promises in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. God promises us everlasting life. Life without end. How do we receive that eternal life that He's given all people as a free gift? By simply asking Him to come and take control of our lives. Recognizing that we ourselves are in control of our lives right now, but it's basically relinquishing that control over to God. Saying, God, I want to give you my life. I feel like I need to give you my life. I feel compelled to give you my life. Some could really say, I haven't been doing a good, very good job running it on my own. Others would say, well, you know, I've been doing okay. But still, I'm recognizing the fact that one of these days I am going to die. I'm not going to live forever. It's appointed unto man, the Bible says, once to die. And after this, the judgment. So after we die, we're all going to stand before God in judgment. And the only thing that's going to do us any good in that day of judgment is for our sins to have been covered by the blood of Christ. If we stand there before God and say, well, you know, I, I was pretty good. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I never stole anything. I didn't kill anyone. That's not going to do you any good because still you're a sinner. But the Lord is going to say to some at that time and in that hour, in that day of judgment, enter into my reward, the reward that has been prepared for you because the Son that I sent, the Savior I sent, was the Savior that you followed and committed your life to. So God promises us life without end. We ask Jesus into our heart to take control, recognizing that we're a sinner and repenting or turning away from those sins. 
This is only for those who believe in and trust in Him for their salvation. That's eternal life. Those are the ones who will escape the wrath that is coming upon this world. And it is coming. We look around and say, well, where's, where's the promise of His coming? You know, preachers and churches, they've been saying that for a long, long time. That Jesus was coming back, but yet He hasn't come back yet. Does that mean He's not coming? The Bible says that God is long-suffering, and that word means, that the phrase means that He's patient. God's not worried about what our calendar says, or what our clock says, or what our schedule says. God's operating to war on the basis of His own time. Time, is, as we measure it, is something that we've invented. God didn't invent it. I mean, God's more concerned with seasons and epochs of time and signs of the times, very generally speaking. But there is a pinpointed time where the Lord is going to return for His church his church are all those who have been redeemed, all those who have given their life to Him all throughout time. And they'll go and they will spend eternity with Him. Will you be among those who do? The question for you today is this. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? It's the most important question that anyone could ever ask another. Because really... Eternity hangs in the balance, depending on how you answer that question. Will you spend eternity with Christ in heaven? Or will you spend eternity separated from Him? Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before you now, we ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior... We pray that today you might draw them by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit and that they might come and commit their life fully and freely over to you, repenting of their sins and asking you to take control. Maybe there are other needs here this morning for recommitment or rededication. Maybe for church membership. Maybe for some other uh, acknowledgement of, of a call that you've placed upon someone's life for some form of special service. Whatever the need is, Father, we know that we can respond during this invitation time. But first and foremost, Lord, the matter of urgency today for every person within my hearing is that they make things right with you. That they know that they know for absolute certain that you are their Lord and Savior and that you've taken control of their life. We pray that you might draw some today to come and make that new commitment to you. We pray this now, asking you to lead. In Jesus' name, amen.